0: Hi, I'm Emma from Papyrus and for today's Papyrus Hopecast we are joined by Dane Buckley from UK Lesbian and Gay Immigration Group as part of LGBT History Month. Dane is the Support Services Manager for UKLGIG. He leads on growing, developing and delivering services, offering practical, psychosocial and emotional support to LGBTQI people who are seeking asylum. LGIG is an organisation that supports LGBTQI people through the asylum and immigration system and provides legal advice and information to LGBTQI people seeking to live in the UK. We caught up with Dane earlier this year via Teams to learn more about the brilliant work that LGIG are doing. In this podcast, we discuss mental health within the LGBTQI community. Dane gave us some of his best self-care tips and we also talked about hope. Welcome to Papyrus Hopecast. Hey
1: Dane.
0: Hiya.
1: How are yeah. you doing? Yeah, very well, thank
0: you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Thanks for joining us for Papyrus's Hopecast today.
1: Oh, you're more than welcome. Great name as well, HopeCast.
0: Thanks. We'll touch on like Hope in a bit, but yeah, yeah. that's that's our main message at Papyrus. Um, so we're here today because it is LGBT History Month. And I just wanted to start off um, with asking you, what do months like LGBT History Month and Pride mean to you?
1: Uh, they're very important. I mean, growing up, even hearing about you know nothing was discussed in my school but hearing about lgbt history month gave me hope to be honest i heard about the fact that some people are discussing that celebrating that um having worked for, for like the leaving care teams and work with younger people as well i know that it continues to give them hope and get get people involved but also perhaps extends knowledge to our allies as well they get more understanding of what we've been through and our culture um, and kind of doing stuff together kind of brings people together so yeah it's very very important and pride is extremely important it's important to our service users it's important to me um because it you know there's still things that need to happen um so yeah they're very very important um, but as i said they also give an element of hope and resilience which we'll probably touch on later
0: yeah, that's a really good point um, that you've touched on. Hope, like I said, is a really important thing at Papyrus. It's something that a lot of people, like, it's a powerful thing to hold on to. And I really appreciated you saying it's, um, these months are good, for, like, for knowledge, for allies. And I want to talk about that a little bit later, about what yeah. more organisations like Papyrus can do to be better allies and to support people in the LGBTQIA plus community. Excellent. Um, so do you just want to start off by telling me a bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, I'm from Harrow, Northwest London represented.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I am the child of immigrants. Uh, my mum is Irish. My dad is Anglo-Indian from Calcutta. Um, yeah, um, I've worked in this field for 19 years, I think. I used to work for the leaving care team and the child protection team and the Fostering Adoption Team, I ran Day Centres for Age Concern, and I ran the Wellbeing Service for the London Irish Centre in Camden, which is really close to my heart. It's the world's largest Irish community centre. And I've been with UKLGIG two years tomorrow. And although I'd worked with people seeking asylum um, and LGBTQI plus people, I'd never worked with a service specifically that caters for both. Um, Yeah, and you may recognise me from the 1985 Mothercare Spring Summer Edition catalogue. So, oh, of
0: course, I <laughs> thought that was you. I <laughs> um, no, that's really interesting to hear about your sort of background. And I'd be curious to hear if it's kind of influenced mm. your, your work and the work that you do. So can you just tell us a bit more about your role at UK LGIG?
1: Uh, absolutely. So I am I am the lead for emotional support. I manage the support service, so I manage three support workers, um, eight volunteers and our team assistant. And what we do is we offer support groups to men and women, and hopefully we're launching one for trans, non-binary and intersex. Um, we also do legal referrals to ensure that our service users are matched with a lawyer who can support and help them. Um, we lead on referrals and signposting to housing services, mental health services. Um health services, accessing a doctor and a GP, um, kind of a one-stop shop for all the support needs that being a, a person seeking asylum has. Which there, and there are very, very many. Um I I also do some of the casework. I tend to lead on the kind of more complex cases, or if a service user specifically asks to speak to a man. Um all of our all of our support services staff members are lgbtqi plus and i have had phone calls from people in detention centers locked into a broom cupboard with the means to end their life and the want to end their life so we do deal with some quite um horrific cases um very frequently but yeah so you know People need to claim asylum. They need they need to go through the system, and they need lawyers. But also, out of that, unpacks many many other things, including you know housing, and mental health, how to get medication, how to how to ask for help in this in this country. If they're not used to that kind of system, and how to do that safely. So yeah, it's a very important service, and you know as I said, it's a specific service, and so our service users are very reliant on us, um, and, because obviously I'll touch on this later, but they have some trust issues with other organisations and other services because of their background and where they come from and
0: yeah. Yeah you touched on a lot there and I think one thing that's really valuable about your organisation is that you offer not only practical but emotional support and like you said it's a very specific need and you're so quite a unique organisation with quite unique experiences so do you mind just telling me a bit more about your service users and I know you kind of touched on some of their experiences and mm-hmm. possibly reasons why they seek asylum so do you just want to talk me through that?
1: I was recently giving an interview to a mental health magazine and I called them superheroes. And I kind of mean that, like the things that they go through to get to this country. And I'll touch on that in a minute. But to get to this country and then the things they experience once here. I don't know how they continue to engage with services, turn up on time, smile, wait their turn uh, um, and, and kind of fit in into normal living after everything they do. I don't know if I could do it myself. So they really I really do take my hat off to them. I mean, they they have to leave home often because of safety, you know, could be members of their own community, members of their own family that are physically hurting them, sexually abusing them, emotionally abusing them, financially abusing them because of their, you know, for example, because of their sexuality. Um, And they have to try and get away or they're they're trafficked into the UK um, or some come on a student visa and for the first time learn that actually they can claim asylum based on sexuality or gender identity. So, you know. They don't do it lightly basically you know and they come here um, and often live a life where they also have to you know we house them sometimes in a, in a in a house where they're with the people they were trying to run away from you know we have very many service users who have been attacked in the housing we have people who felt they've had to go back into the closet but yeah they, they've had a traumatic experience and often leaving the country that they've come from they've had to flee their support and their community leave their world behind um and add to that often the people who should be loving them and supporting them are the ones doing the damage. We tend to see more men, um, and I I think a reason for that is because some of the countries they're coming from, perhaps men have more access to getting out of the house, to getting money, to getting away, um, uh, and so we tend to have more men kind of service users. And as a result of that, we prioritise women and trans people to make sure that they get the service they need. But uh, and we have people from all over the world. The majority I would say would be Africa Asia the Middle East we also have some people from Europe and South America um we have people often from a religious background and some from not, not from a religious background so it, it it can kind of change often as well but yeah and our service users will come with i mean not to get too graphic but we have had people who have been um even been trafficked into the country have been amputated have been abused have been um forced into, into sex work. So it's, it's uh, a real range of issues. It's not just the fact that they wish to claim asylum. It's, it's many, many issues.
0: That's really horrific. It's kind of things that you kind of don't really like you can't really comprehend until you've engaged with people and support them so that must impact you as well
1: yeah i mean i i don't think i feel like i had a good understanding before doing this work but i didn't i certainly didn't know what detention centers were like i visited them now i certainly didn't you know in this country if we commit a crime uh, a criminal knows how long they're they're incarcerated for Mm -hmm. detention centers no you, you, you know, they pick people, they put them in there for, for a long time. Often they don't know how long they're going to be in there and often later on they get released. So it begs the question, what was the reason behind it, but also the massive implications to mental and physical health um, and access to support is a real issue. But yeah, I hadn't fully kind of realized that and I hadn't realized where they're put in society when they a- arrive here. You know, many people seeking asylum can't work aren't allowed to volunteer can't access all health services i mean so they're at the very bottom of society and i feel like they're the most vulnerable and need the need the mm-hmm. most i mean why enough can't they volunteer that's a contribution for everyone you know so i i don't feel we give them a running chance i really i, th- I really feel there's a lot of obstacles in society for them but um yeah i wasn't fully aware of that and i don't think people are mm-hmm. i think too often we see the other headlines of newspapers, you know, asylum seekers coming in, taking jobs, doing this, doing that. You know, it's very interesting work we do with with very interesting people. And the first question I get asked often is, how do you know they're not lying? And I'm like, well, first of all, we wouldn't condone that. We wouldn't work with people we thought were lying. I'm a gay man. I want to make sure that um, LGBTQI plus asylum seekers are are given a safe space. So I wouldn't want somebody else taking that space by lying. So... Uh, we wouldn't we wouldn't condone that and in two years I have only ever come across one person who I thought was lying I challenged the person they left the service that week so it's interesting you know and I've come across one person I've now I I guesstimate I've worked with a thousand so that lets you know so I always say to people take those headlines with a wee pinch of salt
0: (laughs) yeah no that's really important because it's not a very humane reaction to say well how do you know they're not lying?" and also people so, from the community go through so much what would they have to gain from lying they're already discriminated against they already have these challenges
1: and quite frankly like many of our service users miss home miss their culture their music their food their their access to things i don't think they would have all chosen to come here the fact is they have to because they want to stay alive or they want to have some shred of freedom you know they they have to do that it's um yeah it is very annoying but it, it's just one of, one of the factors of the society we live in today, I think, isn't it?
0: Well, I want to thank you for your part in it, because the work right. you're doing is incredible.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I do. You know, I do think what, you know, I'm a gay man. What if I was from one of those countries? Um, you know, I, you, you can't help but think that I do think of other LGBTQI plus people as as my um my tribe in a way you know so you can't help but factor that and I'm very lucky that I was born here so Mm -hmm. yeah and also I'm lucky that I had parents who um accept me for who I am you know
0: yeah and that's good that you're kind of introspective about it and then you're appreciative of your experience but it also just brings it back to it It is all kind of circumstantial and that's one of the difficult things about accepting it
1: absolutely absolutely like yeah, where you're born, what religion you have, and, and even within that, how your parents um, take that on. You know, we, We've also had, you know, there is a lot of hope around. We've also had service users in a country that is, has a particular um, behaviour towards LGBTQI plus people where perhaps the mum has scrimped and saved and sold her jewellery to get her child to the West, to get some kind of, you know, in a society where she would be punished for doing that. Um, so there are massive stories of hope but they're obviously bittersweet, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it is circumstantial. And I, you know, I was listening to a podcast um, recently and they were talking about there's no hierarchy of need just because, you know, the person doing the podcast was a concentration camp survivor. And she was saying, but, but she also, she, she, she went on to become a therapist and she was saying, you know, she was working with somebody who was having issues with her husband at, at the golf club. And actually that, that was okay. It's not a cons- it's not it's not a competition of who's had it worse. it's all relative to how you're doing. I mean, obviously, you can stand from the outside of that and think, well, hold on, but um it's all relative to what you're experiencing and and what you go through and 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 what you know, you know,
0: yeah, and that's a really important thing to take away, like we always talk about this at papyrus, we say that there are several things that can lead someone to experience thoughts of suicide we might all see them differently, like yeah. the loss of a pet, some some people that might not be massively significant to them, but for other people that pet might have offered them more support. So again, how do you measure Absolutely. risk? Because it's all people's it's all relation in relation to people.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And we all have different, you know, levels for dealing with things. So so we're we're all different. So there does need to be some compassion around that. Yeah, exactly. Although saying that I do often <laughs> promise, I do often find myself saying I feel like LGBT, well, I feel like people seeking asylum and within that LGBTQI plus people seeking asylum are, are some of the most vulnerable people in society. And I really do just just for the sheer factor that they can't access many services and are inhibited from accessing things, um, but also all the vulnerabilities around where they've come from. And the way trauma works is, you know, they they come to this country, that their mission has been to get here to live, but actually... We find once people are sometimes granted, they often have some mental health issues because they are safe. But now the other things can start coming through. What happened to me back home? The fact I won't see anyone ever again. The other things come through because they've gone into survival mode to get mm. here, safe, and that's that's how it works. So it's, yeah, now, it's,
0: now there's only that space to sort of process those things. Yeah, it's not a case
1: of no, it is, isn't it? And it's not a case of the day you get granted, like ah. Oh, welcome to solace no that's not how it works we're basically saying to the people once they're granted you know welcome to the bottom of society now please work your way up <laughs> you know which is, which is it's very just
0: cruel. cruel if i'm honest it's cruel
1: yeah and you know i i have i try not to get involved with these conversations now but if if people kind of kind of say to me about oh you know oh you know people seeking asylum come to this country i said you know Look at all the Caribbean people and the Irish people that come to this country. If you know your history, there wouldn't be East Enders if there weren't Jewish refugees. And if you're really going back, you know, there wouldn't be English people that came from Germany when the Welsh were the native population. So it's the way the world works. People come in, they need help, they have to leave home. Nobody nobody owns the land. The land has no names on it. Mm. You
0: know?
1: I mean the tax man may think differently, but you
0: know. <laughs> um anyway. <laughs> Um, so obviously the reason why we're here today is because it is LGBT History Month um, and we are a suicide prevention charity so we kind of wanted to focus on mental health in the LGBTQIA plus community and also suicide prevention and yeah. sadly we do know that members of the LGBTQIA plus community are more likely to experience a range of mental health problems and according to a Stonewall report in 2018 52% experienced depression the last year and suicide attempts and thoughts of suicide are higher in the LGBTQI plus community. And they also found that with trans people, almost half had thoughts of suicide. So that's pretty heartbreaking as well. Absolutely. So do you feel that these figures are reflected in the work that you do day to day?
1: Absolutely, 100%. I mean, to bring it back, um, and just talking about the wider category of LGBTQI plus people, like growing up in school, you can have religion, against you, politics and the law against you, society against you, you know, your sexuality being discussed in the newspapers, all of those things, you know, you can internalise it um, because what you feel is shame, bad, I should hide this. And when when you're dealing in the shadows, that's when often people can be... um, Um, abused and taken advantage of because then people say, well, I'll help you, but you have to do this, 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 or I'll befriend you on this app and you have to do this, 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 you know, that's so you're carrying all that weight around. Now, I'm not saying other people don't have it hard, but I know to be an 18 year old and have headlines about my sex, you know, back then to have headlines about my sexuality or Thatcher's section 28, where teachers couldn't even signpost you to a switchboard or anything. It was a lot to carry on. And when you're young, you're going through stuff already, already, you know. So it's it's a lot to go through historically. Add to that now you're a person seeking asylum and you have lack of support, lack of community, um, you know, and, and also a fear of other services. That fear doesn't stop. Um, you know, it's it's so many things against you and around you, of course. And, and you have a lack of resilience. You know, so many LGBTQI plus people and, and specifically trans are... are homeless, um, aren't able to go home, aren't able, have, able to have relationships with people they've known all their life. You know, that's and that's meant to be your support, your resilience. What do you do without that? You have that rug swept. There is hope, there are organisations, there are your own community and you can find people, but... All of those resiliences are taken away and that's a lot you have to fight so um absolutely i I do see that many of our service users contact us you know one of the main remits of our support service is emotional support because they feel very alone they have they don't feel they can speak openly and safely to everyone. Yeah, um, you know, there are many services out there for people seeking asylum. Sometimes they're linked to religious organizations. And and don't get me wrong, I've been really surprised at how many religious organizations have been wonderful and have contacted us and housed our service users. But I know as an LGBT person, initially, when you come across that, you're worried that they're going to have an issue with you. Um, um, never mind if I was to have to flee a country because of that. Likewise, certain LGBTQI plus safe um, spaces aren't always safe for someone seeking asylum. I know some of our service users, um, when they dated and stuff, they've had to go into the asylum closet, as it were. They were embarrassed that they'd be seen as poor or less of a person. So where do you find your niche then within that? And also, that's a really good breed, breeding ground for anxiety, doubt, fear, um. And uh, kind of the super ego questions playing on your mind. I'm not good enough. I'm bad. I don't belong here. Reinforcing all the things perhaps the people back home said. um, And it really can feed those thoughts. And so we have many people who contact us feeling alone, feeling sad, want to end their life uh, and have an active plan. Now, you know, they're really actively thinking about this. And that's really, really concerning. Um, And I had one phone call and I I was trying to kind of reassure him. um, And I said to him, You know, is there anybody in your life that would miss you, perhaps a mother or a cousin or a friend? And he said, no, no, they've all absolutely disowned me back home. They they paid someone to try and kill me. And I've been doing this for 20 years. And I'm not often I'm not often lost for words, as you can tell. (laughs) But I'm not often lost for words. And I thought, oh, God, you know, who does he have? And then then a light bulb went off and I said, listen, I'm a gay man. I don't want you ending your life. I don't want another gay person ending their life because you shouldn't have to, and and we can help you. He was in detention, so we had to wait till he was released. I mean, we can do help in some ways in detention, but obviously the most we can do is when they're released. And I said to him, please, please don't. I don't, I don't want, you're part of my tribe as well. I don't want you to do that. And um, he agreed not to, and we agreed that we'd speak for the next three days in a row, and then he got released. And um, we got him referred to counselling and... We got him housed with Micro Rainbow, which is a really good organisation we work with that work with people seeking asylum who are LGBTQI+. And he was okay, But but for a minute, I was like, wow, what 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 resilience am I going to come up with? Because this is the reality. And so I can well believe the stats you're mentioning around the Stonewall report and stuff like that. Absolutely. We
0: see that. Thank you for sharing that, because that's really difficult. And. You you understand it, but obviously work in the field we do. We hear some really awful things. But there are moments of hope. And that's what you gave that guy on the phone. You gave him hope and you identified with him and that's something really powerful. There's comfort in that. But what I'm picking up throughout our conversation is this theme of isolation, which I kind of want to touch on properly. But have you kind of seen similar themes emerging within the last twelve months? Because obviously, like we just said, isolation seems to be a key key theme but also with the pandemic on top and everything else it kind of adds another layer to isolation so do you just want to talk to me about that
1: absolutely you know that kind of hackneyed phrase um misery loves company i i don't actually think that's true i think a lot of people when they get down they cut themselves off um if they have something to cut off some people don't have any friends or, or any community here but people can kind of be a little internalizing themselves and not maybe access help because they might be tired of asking for help or they might be giving up. But um but yeah so people who are isolated it's a massive issue. I mean we work with people all over the UK. But obviously we are based in london and so our support groups are in london but we can offer emotional support and we can signpost on to organizations and also some community you know community support is really powerful we have people who are in tiny little villages up north but luckily they've managed to link in with a sm- you know small um uh, lesbian book group or a gay walking group or something and and they're they're lifesavers some of those things but um yeah so some of the themes we've seen are um, as i said mental health and then also accessing mental health you know there's there can be a fear for health services doctors in some of the countries they're from are very powerful you shouldn't challenge them ever you shouldn't you shouldn't question them so you know they're very scared because when they come here they 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 don't like to i was working with a with a man whose um eyesight was going and um the doctor's receptionist kept palming him off and he was he was embarrassed then to raise it again. He said, oh, I'm not allowed. Obviously, I, I mean, I, I got a volunteer to phone and and I said, absolutely, you can challenge her. You, you have a right. And he got it fixed and got it sorted. So accessing the kind of services has been a real issue. In terms of mental health, it was um, accessing a therapist. You know, we, we've mm. done some therapists and counselling, but they can often be scared to commit? Will there be any repercussion? What will they have to say? Will it be used against them? You know, they have that fear and trust. So so that can be an issue. Um, I think in terms of COVID, I have been saying to people every day is a pandemic for a person seeking asylum. You know, what? worried about what the government's saying, uh, scarcity of food, issues with money. Hello. Hello. Every day being an asylum seeker do you know the service users we're working with this is there every single day the only difference is we don't know the end date you know Uh, i'm working with some people who have been in the system for eight nine years you know um housing has been a massive it always has been a massive issue but of course with covid it's it's been exacerbated because some people have had to go back into the closet because the family they're staying with don't don't know or that they've started to stay with don't know about their sexuality um or some people have, we've seen a real increase in people being attacked in their housing um, because they're sharing a room or the housing with the very people they were trying to run away from and they haven't been able to hide their sexuality and they've been um, beaten, they've been threatened, they've been um, they've been sexually assaulted. You know, that's that's been a real issue that's been happen, happening. But also they've had a lack of being able to go and access their community, their safe community, their people, the support services they need. Um the home office requires lgbtqi plus people seeking asylum well all people seeking asylum to have evidence how do you how do you get evidence about who you are when when you are in a detention centre or you're in a house where you have to hide who you are you know how 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 do you do that isn't aren't, aren't we um aren't, aren't we kind of putting them into a trap by doing that
0: yeah it's not but, really a measurable
1: thing no it's not at all so i would say all of the issues are always current but they've been exacerbated by COVID so but the main ones would be isolation, housing, mental health um, and access to evidence.
0: Whilst well, so we're talking about like services available when we first met you mentioned about how service users sometimes can be apprehensive about seeking external support and um, especially when experiencing mental health problems can you just share a little bit more about that?
1: Of course yeah and I think I think this comes down to trust we're a very specific service. Our service users trust us um, and they take a while to trust other services. And I understand that because of where they've come from. And as I said, not, not all services for people seeking asylum are LGBTQI plus friendly. Not, LGBT, not all LGBTQI plus services are um, asylum seeker friendly or inclusive, we'll say. So I really do understand that. So I'll give you an example. An organisation got in touch with me, a lovely organisation called the Inclusive Mosque, that, that, you know, ensure that people can have access to their their faith in a welcoming space. Uh, And many of our service users are religious, and that's great for them if they get something from it, which they do. Um, And I let them know about the different events that were happening for Eid. Um, Not all of our service users are Muslim, I'm just giving an example. But they said absolutely no way we're petrified you're okay thanks they wouldn't, And I said, no, no, it's a really inclusive service. They've got this, this, this. You know, when we work with a service, we make sure that they have a safeguarding policy and we stipulate, are you inclusive of LGBTQI+, plus? even if they are already an LGBT service, because we found that, you know, not everyone is inclusive of trans people. So we really make sure, and we wouldn't refer or signpost on if we didn't, they wouldn't be in our services directory. And we get updates about that from our service users. So we review it. But anyway, basically, a recovering Catholic like myself had to go there and check it out. Um, and they were absolutely absolutely lovely doing wonderful work and I came back to our service users and said look I have um, it's fine I've here's what I've gone through and then our service users engage and absolutely love it but I really understand that fear you know because we have service users who get phone calls that say your mum's dying of a heart attack you need to come home the family business has been signed over to you you need to come home they go home it's a lie it's a trick and suddenly they're married off or beaten or raped or chained to a wall which all of which are real examples um so so i understand that mistrust and fear you know you're a minority within a minority you're an lgbtqi plus person seeking asylum so where is your where is your solace where is your safe space do you know do you know what i mean and there are things out there there are communities but but you know it's limited so trust has been a real issue around that but, you know, word spreads and once people get a good service from somewhere, then 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 they let people know. or well, once we recommend somewhere or as I said, we work, we do work with organisations that do really good work. Like there would be organisations like The Outside Project and Micro Rainbow who I would praise all the way home. So, yeah.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And whilst we're like talking about this, we had a conversation as well, because we said to you kind of what more could we do to show that we are inclusive? And, you know, for the month, we've changed our logo to have the flag, but obviously we yes. don't want to just come across as performance yeah. or ticking a box. Yeah. So it's all about like looking sort of doing the work internally, reviewing policies. And recently we took part in trans awareness training with gendered intelligence. That was yes. that was really great. They're a great organization. And it was kind of just really like heartwarming because so many of the team came along um, and. Yeah. And yeah. there were loads of discussions and questions and that just showed that people cared because they were asking all the questions. They yes. wanted to get things right. Um, but also it is just about kind of being proactive with what we do and implementing it internally as well. Yes. So can I just ask you what more can organisations in suicide prevention do to show LGBT plus support?
1: Um, I think do what you, your organisation did, which is reach out to people. You reached out to us and asked what more you could do. You, you guys have a website that specifies that you're you're looking to engage with the community and how you can offer assistance you're training up staff in specific stuff I mean they're they're all the perfect things ask questions be open and honest and and if you don't know something that's absolutely okay and you can find out you know if there's something your advisor doesn't know saying look I'm not sure but hold on the line or I'll call you back I'm going to find out and come back to you um, that's absolutely fine and it makes people feel safe and you know it may be I don't know how many advisors and stuff you have it may be if someone really wants to speak to an lgbt advisor that you might be able to offer that or or you signpost on to a lgbt specific service so there are different ways i, th- I think just ruminating and asking the questions and looking at how we do this that is the seed of hope that's needed
0: talking us through all of that obviously you deal with a lot of challenging things and at Papyrus we say it's really important that everyone that's supporting people also supports themselves and it sounds like a bit of a buzzword but we we really value self care we say that it's really important that people look after themselves so what do you do to look after yourself have you got any tips or anything like that
1: um absolutely <laughs> uh, <laughs> so i think there's five words that come to mind i'll say them and then we can go into them love it so, Gratuity, community, boundaries, resilience, and hope. Um, So, yeah, I think I myself have a gratuity, gratuity, I can't say it, but I do it, (laughs) practice, whereby um, I give thanks every day. So I you know, and there is some evidence um, in terms of um, CBT to say that this can actually really help with self-esteem and feelings around anxiety. And there are lots of apps. Calm has one. Happy Note has one. I think it's 99 pence and you pay for it once. You could do it in a notepad with paper um, by your bed. Basically, it's that you at the end of the day, you write down three things that made you happy or made you smile. Now, I learned the hard way. You start, start, be realistic. I was like, mm, world peace, solved cancer, <laughs> and spoke with Kate Bush. Do you know what I mean? It's like you need to be realistic.
0: I like how that's the top three. There's like some range going on there.
1: Kate Bush was above the world hunger. Obviously. <laughs> but um, yeah, you need to. So I would do stuff like, um spoke to you know my mum lives in Thailand. Spoke to my mum. Made a lovely dinner for a friend um watched a uh, really good tv watched discovery of witches on on netflix things that you would do that just you like and and they're not fully sure how it works but for some reason even if you only do it for a few weeks they found that the evidence suggests that um it helps with esteem and it helps you feel a little bit more positive i think i think what it specifically says it helps to guide you towards things that make you feel better so kind of you inadvertently when you write these things down you start to record in your mind I know I did this I kept seeing like I have this Italian nonna who I see every every few weeks and we have dinner she's 84 and she's amazing um I noticed down that she was always in my three list spoke to her went to dinner for her sent her this and so then if I ever was feeling down I would tweak it And I'd be like, ah, when I feel happy, I know that I've often spoken with this person or gone and seen this person. And I would actively do those things to combat. So you can see patterns. But that's just a benefit. The gratuity is, is, I think, the important part. And it's really nice. And actually, it's nice to see. Wow. You know, one day I had it was like dinner, spoke to a friend, had a lovely long bath. And I was like, those things are really achievable. Yes, the power, the power of flight and teleportation would be lovely, (laughs) but what what my budget can allow um I <laughs> <And> do, reality
0: <laughs> and, oh, yes
1: <laughs> budget and reality um i do really do re- really like that it's nice and it's important to do that even when you're feeling good i just think it i think we live in such a world now where you turn on the news and it's like you know whales are dead warfire riots aliens are coming the end is nigh and I, I sometimes think gosh what if what if we're okay what if we survive what if the earth makes it through? You know, you have to fight for hope. I don't watch the news, but I will I will. I spend two hours watching puppy and cat videos on YouTube? Absolutely. 100%. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: absolutely. And I remember um, that when the news would have little happy stories like puppy befriends a billy goat, you know, those kind of things. I think it's important to remember the good stuff. I don't think we're as, you know, one, my best friend is American and I think America's, uh, Americans are better at celebrating this kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And we're not as good. I mean, Mickey Flanagan lived there, the comedian, and he said he left America when people started high-fiving when the arrival of the salad at the table happened. (laughs) Oh,
0: no. See, I think we're just, like, quintessentially, like, British in the sense that we're just, like, don't be ridiculous.
1: (laughs) I I acknowledge its arrival, yeah. Yeah, That's good
0: enough.
1: (laughs) I I also think community is important, especially um, for um, Amistad Morpin, the writer, his 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 autobiography is called chosen family. And I think, you know, especially LGBTQI plus people, we have chosen families. We have people, you know, my family are lovely and I, and I see them all, but not everyone is that lucky. And so they have to find their own family, their new, their new queer families that were, some people say, um, you know, and, but also the power of community, having friends and safe spaces that you can go to having, having um, allies, you know, I've got some straight male friends And it's so lovely that I was telling a story about a friend I had I went to uni with and we were in Gaze the Word, which is a really good um, gay bookshop. that has been around for years. It's amazing. Plug in Gaze the Word, everyone. Um,
0: (laughs) Say it again. Say it louder.
1: (laughs) It was Gaze the Word. Gaze the Word in Russell Square. Amazing (laughs) life changing bookshop. Gaze the Word. Um, (laughs) And um, I was in that bookshop and there was a handsome man looking at a book and he smiled at me and my friend with me who's a straight man said gosh he doesn't know that i'm not with you how rude and i said i was like shh and he was like no that's so rude and as i walked through the bookshop he held my hand the whole time so that the guy gave the impression that he was with me which was i was in stitches about and when i went to the counter this friend had his arm around me to ruin my chances but also I loved that he was so comfortable to come to this bookshop with me and to joke in this way I mean he did ruin my chances of a potential husband but but I've, I've forgiven him um but that kind of you know that kind of friendship and stuff and I, I was introducing him to different elements of queer culture which he loved I love that I can do that sometimes that's equally important to someone who's not LGBT plus you know um, so, yeah, community boundaries. I am really boundaryed. I have, you know, I work for a lovely organisation. Everyone in our team is lovely. But even my manager, when we're in the office and it's, it's five to five, she sometimes double checks to see if there's enough time for what the question to ask me because I finish at five on the dot, you know, which is lovely of her. But um, I'm very strict about that. I make sure I take a lunch break. I finish on time. I don't talk about work on the phone um, outside of work. All of those boundaries, I think, are really, really, really important. And as I said, I don't listen to warfire riot news um, mm. when I when I come home. I watch puppy videos. I, I think you have to be boundaried. Yeah, and you also... To... it
0: helps you do the work you're doing. And I don't know if you find this as well, but oh, I was going to say when you're at a party or when you meet people, <laughs> what is that? What is a party? Oh, I've heard about that. Go what on. are strangers? <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, like sometimes I won't say what I do. Um, if I'm not in the mood to talk about it, because either Absolutely. sometimes people will start sharing, which is really lovely that they feel comfortable to but sometimes it's yeah. that protection for yourself, but also Absolutely. other times i it'll just shut the conversation down. So I don't know yeah. if you have that as well.
1: I mean, I um what happens with this line of work for me is that people assume I'm a saint and a martyr, especially when <laughs> I like work for social services and, and child protection, they're like you're such a good person. And I used to be like, Gosh, I'm not to be honest. I'm sarcastic. I have dark sense of humor. These are some of the reasons why I've survived so long in that frame of work, because I can tell you social work is a really dark sense of humor. Um, But um, but um, yeah, the two don't you don't, you know, it's like I'm not a martyr at all. I'm far from it. But perhaps some of that humor is my coping mechanism, you know. Um, Yeah. And then the last two words were resilience and hope. So, you know, in social work, they talk a lot about resilience Two people, two kids can suffer the same trauma, the same abuse. One grows up and it really, really affects them. One, you know, it affects them their whole life. Another grows up and it doesn't affect them as much. They're able to overcome it. And what they found is there are certain um, resilience factors and they're not what we think they are. They could be a child has a puppy. It has one auntie that look or one adult that looks out for them that they get on with. Uh, the child has a skill, it plays the flute, or is really good at football, or the child has one good parent that loves them, or the child is um confident and able to engage and, and speak to adults. One of those resilient factors versus a child that doesn't have maybe um anything to look after, like a puppy, or Has never been told they're good at something. There's nothing to reinforce their self-esteem. So when abuse happens, there's nothing to shield them, and it bounces off. And they so they're not fully sure how it works. But it's about, I guess, equipping um, an individual with a self-esteem to combat negativity. So and that works the same into adulthood. You know, my resilience definitely is is my humour, my um, how sociable I am. Um, and my my friends, and as a child, it was that I had a very loving mother. Um, Ireland was my one of my resiliences. I would go there and have these amazing holidays, and my confidence. Um, you know, so. Resiliences can take a different form because some people have said you know how can having a puppy help a child well actually you've got something you have to care for it's not about you anymore it's about also looking out for this thing the puppy brings you joy the puppy you have a responsibility you have to get up at this time and feed it there's there's and actually i'm not that interested in working out the how or, or the why i'm i'm looking at the um it the, it yeah exactly the profit of it mm-hmm. um so resilience is important. And I think, as I said, doing something like gratuity um, helps you identify the resilience. And lastly, hope. Hope um, are the tools and the defense mechanism. They are the weapons against negativity. You know, if you've got hope, a lot of hope, you can really fight off a lot of the bad things. Um, I'm stalling there because I realize our team assistant is also called Hope and it's an um um, and she's amazing. And so, uh, when I'm saying hope, I'm also thinking of, of of the great work she does. But yeah,
0: and that's something that you find is kind of the last thing that people will have, and it's not necessarily a tangible thing, but it is something powerful to hold on to. Um, yeah, I mean, so thank you for sharing that.
1: pride is. I mean, pride is a form of hope. You know, pride is really powerful, and pride is a resilience factor as well. When you're, when you're, I mean, I. It's hard to measure because I had a loving mother, but. I always had this element of me where, you know, I went to a very toxic masculine Catholic school and um, people, people would kind of berate me about my sexuality, but I never let them away with one thing. I challenged left, right. I challenged students. I challenged teachers. I challenged religion. And that was because deep down, I had no concern about it being wrong. I never, I never said, this is bad. I need to hide it. I said, God, I love this. I mustn't let, others know about it yet until it's safe do you know what I mean so I had that resilience and hope so I was able I was able to combat some of the other stuff so absolutely yeah
0: thank you for sharing that and it was really nice to hear kind of all your self-care tips and what you do for self-care because obviously like I keep saying doing the work that you do you need those things to look after yourself you know we always say you can't look after anyone else if you can't look after yourself it it sounds cliche but there's so much truth to it yeah Um,
1: and nice things I'm saying I'm not like saying go you know I'm sure going for a run is lovely I've only read about it but you know I'm not saying I'm not saying like give a pint of blood or do this do this it's quite nice things you know
0: yeah having a bath yeah
1: Yeah, yeah. some me time you know
0: yeah exactly and it's like you touch an important part as well that it's what works for you so yeah. you- you know, I I did a practice run through of the questions with my colleague and I was like, what do you do for self-care? And she just jokingly said, I'm a fire dancer. And I was just like, yes, if that works for you, <laughs> that might be anxiety inducing for some people, but if that works for you, then <laughs> go ahead. Um, but yeah, for other people, it might just be Netflix. <laughs> yes. um, you touched on a really important thing and we've kind of talked about it a little bit, but hope. Um, I would like to finish on something positive. So mm. do you want to tell me what gives you hope nigella yes okay yes
1: second place nando's <laughs>
0: okay anything else uh, beginning with n is there a theme <laughs> uh,
1: yes. yeah, that's true actually mm, i need to think about that um but um and in a way i'm being honest like i think laughter and food people give me hope um, do you know, the world isn't all bad. I know there's a lot of things going on, but science has come a long way, people are living longer, we're able to combat certain conditions. And there are a lot of good people out there. We, you know, I get phone calls from people that say, look, I have two big rooms, is there a way I can give them to LGBT people seeking asylum? Um you know, we, we don't offer that service, but I refer them on to refugees at home who will debt people and and, and use that. It's a really good charity. You know, it's lovely. It's humbling. We get, you know, last Christmas, we had a Christian organization reach out to us wanting to provide food and gifts to their, our service users. There are really good people. You know, during lockdown, I've done lots of baking and I have befriended um, lots of my neighbors that I didn't know before. And we kind of swapped recipes and got to know each other and had some community support i mean look at all the people that have stepped up and and done stuff during lockdown so the world isn't all that bad we we're, we're okay we we are more than okay we'd love to have a moan but the nhs is amazing it does amazing work we are all generally very lucky um of course there are exceptions and things happen but but i can only talk about my circle you know um, i'm not talking about our service users i'm talking about just people in my own life but um um i'll leave you with two stories that gave me such hope i've worked in child protection i've worked in traumatic cases and and it, and it's very um difficult i know but the way i am set up is that i i become solution focused so i you know of course that was difficult but i will in the weeks after that my energy will go into the mum and 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 the dad and the three other remaining siblings You know, do you know what I mean? So I'm solution focused and that's where my energy will go. However, the stories that topple me are the happy stories. And two of them that really stick out um, for me when I volunteered at Switchboard. One was a very sweet 85 year old from Scotland. She rang me and she had said that basically her grandson was homeless. He was 15 and um, the parents he'd come out and the parents had disowned him. And the grandmother had taken him in and had disowned her children because she believed her children should love somebody. And she was disgusted by this. She rang and she wanted to know what products she should get him for his hair, what clothes, what food, what TV stations, and which group she should bring him to. She'd got him involved in like a roller a rollerblading group for gay people. And I just love that she would rang. I just remember this voice checking in with me saying, you know, there are many bars, but I can't take him to the bar yet because he's only 15, what would you recommend? And I was like, this idea of this sweet lady, she had a mobility scooter and just taking her grandson down to the bar. I was filled with such hope and loveliness. It was really gorgeous. And then the second story, which uh, he was very young, it was a nine year old boy rang and he was crying his eyes out. And I said, why are you crying? And he said, because I packed my bags this morning because I was gonna tell my mum I fancy boys and i assumed she'd throw me out i understood that that was what happens when you tell someone you're gay they throw you out and i packed my bags and i told her i'm gay and she said she loves me no matter what and i'm and he's crying his eyes out and then he said can i speak to a gay person and the mum said i don't know any gay people but we can ring a number and then he said to me are you a real gay person And and i said i am and it was so it was so bittersweet because he thought he'd get chucked out automatically, but I love that there was a mum out there. I mean, the truth is he was nine, he's he, he's still working out who he is, but there was a mum out there that's turned around and said, I love you no matter what, let's speak to a gay person, here's a wee phone number, let's ring that. I was just filled with such hope that, you know, they shouldn't have to be like that, But but I was just, I can't help but see the positive there, you know, and it, it does move me and, you know, five years later, I'm still rehashing those stories.
0: Thank you for sharing. Dane it's been amazing speaking to you it's definitely been up and down we've spoken about some quite challenging things so thank you for being so honest about that and sharing not only your service users experiences and the work that you do but also your experiences Um, I I hope we've given them enough to work with Um, I feel like we have (laughs) we have done some talking Um, but yeah thank you so much Um, and yeah I look forward to Karen working with you Thank you so much for listening to Papyrus Hope Class and for your part in making suicide part of the conversation. Sometimes listening to these stories can be hard. If you're a young person struggling with thoughts of suicide or if you're worried about a young person, you can contact Hopeline UK on 0800 068 4141 via text on 0786 0039967, or via email on pat at papyrus